This is Oklahoma football. It is Monday, November 16th, and welcome to another Game Week edition of the Mainline Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Burton, and I'm proud to be joined once again by Adam Jacquez as we kick off Bedlam Week here in the state of Oklahoma. Adam, we're finally past the bye week, and it feels like there's a lot of excitement in the air, finally, uh, for, for this upcoming weekend when o- Oklahoma State's traveling up here to Norman uh, to take on OU Saturday night. So re- really excited about this one. Yeah, for sure. We've had so many bye weeks this year, and it's good to finally get to a point where, you know, without uh, without any knock on wood, I guess, as far as COVID, but um, we're due for a good stretch of games here in a row, which will be really awesome. Yeah, I've just noticed here, looking at my phone here in the last half hour or so, there's already been a couple more cancellations across the country. So hopefully the COVID will stay, uh, stay away from the football programs at both schools, and we can have a game Saturday night. So uh, it's going to be fun. Well, we, Adam, we've got a, we've got so much to get to today. Dustin Johnson winning the masters NBA trade season, uh, got underway today. There's a lot that we can get into with that is the thunder. They, they made some big time moves earlier today. Uh, and finally, like I said, we got Bedlam on Saturday night with, uh, OU Oklahoma state college game day coming to Norman for the first time in eight years. It's kind of hard to believe with all the, uh, all, all the great teams that OU's had over the last decade or so, especially in the last four or five years, you know, going to the playoff every single year. Uh, can't believe that, that college game day hasn't been to Norman. So we'll kind of dive into that also. But uh, kicking things off, dude, uh, 2020 Masters, you, you know, came to a conclusion yesterday. Dustin Johnson finishing at 20 under. He kind of ran, ran away with it, dude. Lowest score in Masters tournament history, uh, surpassing what Tiger did a few years ago and Jordan Spieth. Uh, getting to 18 under a couple of years ago when he won the tournament. So uh, just kind of what were some of your thoughts as, as far as the Masters goes? It was kind of weird not having patrons there, uh, kind of sharing the TV time slots with football and a lot of other things going on. But uh, do you have a chance to watch some golf over the weekend? Yeah, I did. I felt like the more the weekend went on, the less golf or the less I was really dialed into it. Um, simply because by Saturday, midday Saturday, Dustin Johnson had taken such a big lead. It felt almost insurmountable. He really never had any any real big down moments except for maybe like the first three or four holes on Sunday. He hit a couple of bogeys, but then recovered pretty quickly. But he had such a big cushion to start with that it never truly felt like anyone was right there putting pressure on him. And there was no fans there to um, you know continue the pressure either. So it just as the weekend went on, it was like, man, I guess I'm just watching this just to see him finish out. I guess. Yeah, it, it definitely did have the same feel to it. I mean, starting out Thursday and Friday, I mean, I was I was super excited to watch it, regardless of if there's patrons there or not. The golf course is beautiful. You've got the best players in the world. That's such an iconic place. And you, you know, you're going to get, uh, you know, re- really good moments from those, you know, outstanding players. But uh, Thursday and Friday were, were really good. I watched quite a bit of it on Saturday um, up at work. You know, it was kind of a week slate. Uh, across the country for college football. We can thank COVID for that. Um, we'll get into that here in a little bit. But, yeah, um, watched quite a bit of it on Saturday. As you mentioned, Dustin Johnson played outstanding, kind of separated himself, get, gave him a quite a you know pretty good cushion going into the final round on Sunday. And, um, like I said, going to church on Sunday morning, came back. He had a – I think it was a four-shot lead at the time going to the back nine. 
And, you know, that, that's the best part about the Masters every single year is when the, you know, when the final group makes the turn going to that 10th hole on the back nine in Augusta, you know, you you see the iconic holes, the the patrons, the humongous crowds, and, you know, the roars. That's really what Augusta's famous for on Sunday afternoon. We just didn't see any of that. So, you know, you kind of take that away. Dustin Johnson having a four-shot lead, you know, kind of being his tournament to – uh, to lose and he just he played absolutely outstanding like I said setting the setting the lowest score in, in tournament history at that course um, we knew the 2020 it was going to be a it was going to be a different tournament it was going to be kind of unusual um, but he played played outstanding and there was there was absolutely nobody that was going to uh, be able to hang with him but uh, uh, how did you go about uh, splitting time on both Saturday and Sunday as far as kind of flipping back and forth and uh, with the Masters going on, we had college football all day, NFL, Kyler, uh, probably what, one of the best plays that I've ever seen. Um, just a Hail Mary pass, just an absolutely outstanding moment. There's some good good NFL games early yesterday. It was just so the, the remote definitely got a good workout in. Yeah, I had three different screens playing different events on Saturday, and Sunday had two screens. But I did feel like the more it went on again, I was more and more focused on football. Uh, Saturday was kind of odd because most of the good college football games in the beef of the slate was really at the 11 a.m. slot, which lined up completely with the golf uh, masters there. So that was kind of unfortunate because as the day dragged on for college football, it got leaner and leaner and less interesting. Uh, so that was a little bit difficult. But by Sunday, it was it was like, man, I guess I'll have some golf on just in case something crazy happens. And really, the only thing that unusual that happened was Tiger hitting a 10 on a par three, uh, which was quite interesting. But um, yeah, otherwise it got easier and easier as it went yeah. on. Tiger making a 10 on that part three definitely made me feel a little bit better uh, as an amateur golfer about the the status of my game. But uh, no, d- definitely wasn't his week. I thought he bounced back well, you know, after the 10 yesterday, burning four of his final five holes. Um, and uh, again, the, kind of one of the best parts about this is, you know, typically the Masters is played in April, but now that we've got it here towards the end of November, uh, just for, we've got four more months, and then we're going to be right back at it again. Uh, for, for another green jacket on the line up in this upcoming April. So, but uh, yeah, he- hell of a performance by Dustin Johnson running away with it, setting the, setting the tournament record. Um, and, and again, the, you, you got to feel for him, feel for him. He, you know, he works his tail off. Um, and w- whenever he's got all of his, all the different facets of his game going, um, th- there's probably nobody in the world that can beat him when he's on. So uh, kind of wrapping up the Masters, we'll, we'll touch on it again here in four more months. Definitely excited about that once. Hopefully we do have the patrons back and can, can kind of get a little bit more normalcy uh, with with when it kicks back up here in the springtime. But uh, let's, I kind of want to throw this over to you. You follow the NBA, um, you know, definitely us being big-time Thunder fans, but you definitely pay attention to it a lot more, you know, whether it's with Shams, Woj, all the different things this time of the year with the trade season getting underway. Um, we, had, we had quite a bit of action, especially early on this afternoon when everything kind of got going. Yeah, I was really waiting for that Chris Paul trade to hit, and it took about an hour after the uh, the trade uh, opportunities opened up, but it did happen. Uh, he did end up at the Suns, and I felt like the return for him was, was pretty good to get a, a, a protected, somewhat protected first-round pick uh, in 2022 from the Suns. And I think that's going to work out really well uh, in addition to getting all the extra players that we got from the Suns as well. So the biggest piece probably is Kelly Oubre because he's a, one of those three and D type wings that pretty much every contender is going to talk themselves into the way that uh, we have as the Thunder over the years talking about, Oh, you know, maybe if we just had this one extra piece, then we'd, 
really be a finals contender. And now the Thunder have that type of guy in Kelly Oubre. And we also have that in Danny Green, too. He had a little bit of a rough year last year with the Lakers. But even if he's you know not great with the Thunder through the first part of this season, other teams will still look at him and go, oh, he's on the Thunder and they're no good. <laughs> so if you know he ends up here in Toronto or Miami or wherever, whatever team might be looking at him, they'll talk themselves into the idea of Danny Green. So we'll have some, some nice trade prospects to, uh, to send to some other teams uh, here within maybe a couple of days or leading up to the trade deadline as well. So let me ask you this, you know, it's, it's been, you know, um, it's been well-documented, you know, especially here in the Oklahoma area, just how good Sam Presti has been in these off seasons. And obviously we've seen what he's done with uh, getting rid of, uh, you know, what he's done with, you know, trading Russell Westbrook, Paul George going away, Durant, all these, all of these moments where he's been able to, you know, really accumulate all these different draft picks and really setting the, uh, setting it up for the, uh, you know, the future of the Thunder over these next five, six years. As the Thunder kind of move through, you know, the better part of these, you know, next half decade, what what's the uh, kind of what's the game plan right now, or what's what's Presti going to be doing as far as you know drafting? Is he you know going to be focusing solely on using those draft picks to uh, kind of build a, a young nucleus of of talent for the Thunder, or do you think it could be more of him using those as leverage in terms of like different trade options? I think you know he's spent the last year year and a half or so basically just collecting as many first round draft picks as he possibly can. He's gotten some great return. He's he rehabbed uh, Dennis uh, Schroeder after a couple of years. He rehabbed Chris Paul because when, when Paul came to Oklahoma city, I looked at that and I wasn't a big Chris Paul fan, but he, he his trade value was probably as low as it maybe had ever been uh, in his entire career. He looked like a burned out aging superstar with a bloated contract. And in one season, um, credit to Chris Paul for working really hard and, and staying healthy and everything, but um, also to the Thunder organization for making him look a lot better and getting a ton of return for, for that. So uh, flipping those types of guys, I think he'll flip Kelly Oubre. I think he'll flip Danny Green. He might even be able to flip uh, Ricky Rubio as well and get some big return. But I think at this point, at any moment we could see, and by any moment, I mean any draft within the next couple of years here, we could be seeing Sam Presti cashing in, uh, you know, several of those first round picks for a better position. I think maybe the best example of that is the Thunder are going to continue to tank and try to get a really high draft pick, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee them the right spot to get the guy that they're looking at. But if you take a look at what the Dallas Mavericks did a few years ago, they traded up just two spots to get Luka Doncic. And that looks really good right now. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a key franchise player for at least the next 10 years. Yeah. So if the Thunder can kind of model that and maybe, you know, they have the seven pick one year, but they'd really like to have the number three. They have a lot of ammo and flexibility to move around and do that. Um, so there's just so much flexibility. I don't know that this is the right year necessarily because the draft is looked at as really weak. Um, but maybe there's one guy that Sam Presti really likes right now. And, or maybe he just looks at the draft and goes, well, everyone else thinks it's weak. So the you know the cost to move up is really <laughs> low so i might as well do it but i mean he could move up in multiple drafts at this point to to really get his guy he's just got so much uh, so much nba currency which is first round picks okay so provide some clarity and shine a little bit of light on this we've heard a lot of talk you know whether it's on sports talk radio different beat writers writing certain things there's been a lot of a um, lot of stories that have combined the thought of oklahoma city being a destination spot for LaMelo Ball to land. 
is that something that is truly realistic or is that just kind of a um, clickbait type thing? Or could you definitely see the Thunder getting involved in something like that? I think some people are connecting some dots because his older brother, LiAngelo Ball, is currently with the Oklahoma City Blue. So I think there's some parallels there. I, I don't know if it's rumors from maybe the Timberwolves who have the number one pick. Maybe they are trying to create some buzz and some competition for you know some other team to come in and trade with them. Or, or maybe that's the Thunder doing that. I don't know how much there really is to believe in that because I think for the Thunder to get up high enough in the draft to get him is probably within the top three. I don't know that you would necessarily trade a ton of draft picks to get him. And I think the asking price is probably to give up Shea Gilgis Alexander. I don't know that you would necessarily do that just to basically trade straight up for LaMelo. I don't think you would do that. And that was going to be my follow-up question to you. You know, we've seen Chris Paul, obviously he's, he's out of Oklahoma city now which Oklahoma city got a really good return on that, on that trade. Um, But now you look at a veteran like Steven Adams and even a, you know, a young soon to be all-star if, if he continues to improve in SGA, is there really anybody on this Thunder team that Sam Presti just says, no, absolutely not, no chance? Or is it early in the process enough to where we can say that, you know, every player is on the table if we can get something good in return for it? Because could you see like Steven Adams getting moved, Presti entertaining, you know, SGA? Well, obviously, it would have to be a tremendous, you know, return on that investment to get rid of SGA. But kind of what are your thoughts on Steven Adams and uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander? I would say Steven Adams is, we're, we're definitely probably listening to any trade offer for him, but at the same time, it really doesn't hurt us to have him around and be a great culture piece, uh, get him on a smaller deal going forward in future uh, seasons. But it's certainly one, if you get the right offer from someone that wants to get him at the deadline, probably, I don't, I wouldn't say he's off the table with uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander. I don't think that there's really any offer out there that a team would be willing to do that makes sense. He's still a young player on a controllable contract, which is really important in a market like Oklahoma city, where we really can't convince free agents to come play at the Chesapeake Energy (laughs) Arena. So having a guy where we control his rights for another four years after his rookie contract, that's really important and valuable for a team like the Thunder to have. So uh, I don't think he's in danger of going anywhere. Now, if this was a draft where you had someone a little bit closer to a Zion type prospect or next year with a Cade Cunningham type uh, of, you know, number one potential, then I think you start having some serious talks about, hey, we'll give you SGA and, you know, a protected first round pick for the number one or the number two, if, if you're getting that first, you know, surefire generational type player. But I'm not convinced that there's anybody in this draft that is that right now. So it could, it could just be something where, you know, potentially they're a year or two away from truly finding that key you know, franchise piece that they could get in, in the NBA draft. So, well, kind of, kind of one more follow-up with, with Steven Adams. You know, definitely one of the things that we've talked about and I think has been pretty common throughout Thunder fans. You know, Steven Adams has been tremendous for this franchise. You know, he's, he's consistent year in and year out. He's a rebounding machine. But as we've kind of seen in the modern-day NBA – You've got to have all. You've got to have five guys on the floor that can shoot the ball. So whether it's you know Jokic, uh, you know Anthony Davis, Marcus Gasol, Porzingis, what he's doing in Dallas, your five man essentially has to, has to be a uh, a threat. Whether it's a jump shot behind the three point line, is there really anybody out there right now that you could see uh, as being a viable option for like a guy like Stephen Adams, or is that even something where you could essentially teach Stephen Adams, you know, a, a jump shot or something like that? Because that only helps you out as far as being able to space the floor 
uh, and be a little bit more, you know, multiple on offense. Yeah, the next couple of years really aren't about playing really well and winning games. <laughs> so I don't think it really matters necessarily that much. Now there is, everyone's talked for the probably last three or four years about how Steven Adams has a, a great jumper and he does it in practice and they've seen him hit threes, you know, shooting around in warmups. And I think he hit a three in the preseason opener uh, this past season and really never attempts them ever uh, beyond that. So if there's ever a year for him to actually start taking threes, this is the perfect year to do it. There's no reason not to. If he is terrible at it, he's terrible and great. Like we're not trying to win games here in Oklahoma City right now. So might as well do it. Raise your value, especially as he's an expiring contract. If he can hit threes at 30%, which is respectable for the five, he could be looking at really expanding his worth and his value for his next contract. Otherwise, I think he's looking at a pretty significant pay cut because of the value of centers in this league right now. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great, great point. And we'll kind of transition, kind of be our last kind of talking point as far as NBA trade talk goes. Uh, two former Thunder players that there's been a lot of drama around down in the Houston area, James Harden, Russell Westbrook. James Harden, basically, uh, it looks like he's trying to do anything and everything to uh, get, get out of Houston, get up to the East Coast, whether it's joining like a Brooklyn type thing where you team up with Durant and Kyrie. Just talk about like how crazy it is, you know, whether it's losing, you know, Mike D'Antoni as a coach, but it, it just kind of seems like that thing went from zero to 100 as far as it being, you know, stable down to Houston to now. It, it almost looks like they're ready to blow the thing up. Well, I think I think James Harden and Russell Westbrook are ready to blow it up and leave, but I don't think necessarily the ownership and management in Houston is ready to do that. So you've got a really interesting crossroads there. James Harden seems to be pushing pretty hard to get out. I think the sign that Westbrook wants out too, I think he got his trade requests, you know, public first. So it didn't seem like he was trying to leave because Harden was leaving, but he might've known that already. I think Harden makes more sense to get out of there quickly. Westbrook the market's not nearly as good and you don't have Presti trading him in this case. So I think it will be a lot tougher to do. Couldn't have worked out much better for Thunder fans though, because we own a lot of the future uh, picks from the mm-hmm. Houston Rockets. So it's, it's truly a delight, you know, love Russ uh, always will, but it's a lot less stressful and a lot more fun to watch uh, those types of teams destruct uh, from this side and not, uh, not have all that stress when, people were, were bagging on him when he was in Oklahoma City. And I think that's the first thing that you said to me once the Russ to Houston trade actually happened and, or, and he ended up signing with them is, you know, how's that going to work with James Harden to, you know, ball dominant perimeter guys? And I guess obviously we, we saw it kind of work, saw him kind of clash heads throughout the year last year, but it definitely looks like uh, Harden's on his way out. Uh, wh- where he's going to go, we don't know, but it, it's kind of sad. It kind of seems like Russell's going to get stuck down in Houston. So uh, definitely be something to uh, continue to follow as we move throughout this trade NBA trade season. So, well, dude, it's it's Bedlam week. It's it's what it's why we're here. I'm I'm really excited about it. Um, OU ranked number 18, Oklahoma State number 14. First night game for for Bedlam in what history is, is that is that right? First ever night game for Bedlam in Norman. In, in Norman, Norman, yes. In Norman, yeah. okay. Which I, is frankly amazing. And I know if you go back into the early 2000s when some of those were some big time matchups in 2003, you know, around that time frame, the 2.30 slot was a much bigger time slot than it is 
now. I still think the 2.30 time slot, in my opinion, is the best time slot, just because especially later in the year where the game starts during the day, by the time it ends, it's under the lights. I think that's pretty cool. But yeah, it's it feels like that's always been a night game in Stillwater because that's kind of an equalizer. It gives OSU an edge uh, because they're much, <laughs> not trying to put them down, but they're a much worse program than OU. So that, that does give them an <laughs> advantage say to play at home, obviously. Yeah. So that it's been rare that we've we've had much of a hyped matchup in Norman with OSU. Well, in a sense, Oklahoma State, it seems like they've had more success playing in Norman than they have in Stillwater. They, they play much better when they come up here and play OU uh, on the road. So that, that's going to be very interesting to see. You know, I can, I can even remember, you know, all the years that we've been going to Bedlam. I've been to two Bedlam games in Stillwater where college game day was there. So finally having a chance, obviously it'll be a lot different, you know, not being able to go and attend, but still being able to see it on TV, uh, the college game day crew at, you know, at the, at the stadium here in Norman, but it, it's just going to be, it's going to be so different and obviously wish we could be attending, but you know, the fact that you are going to be able to have, you know, that, that spotlight on your program uh, this upcoming Saturday, seeing that OU helmet logo on uh, on that stage for three hours, it's, it's definitely going to be exciting. And what, what do you think they're going to set it up at? I know years past when fans were actually allowed, they had it over at the track by the Duck Pond. They've had it over at the the empty lot over by the Huff, where you had the north or the south end zone in the background. What, what do you think they're going to be set up at? I guess they can do it in the stadium since it's a night game. They can set it up wherever. That just feels so generic to put it inside the stadium because I don't know, it doesn't look that much different than hardly any other stadium. Yeah. I don't think there's a place like this on campus corner, but it would be cool if they were to set up on a rooftop overlooking campus. I mean, I probably need a lot more space than that, but yeah. Well, first place off the top of my head, I don't, and again, I don't think the space is big enough, but the rooftop at Villar, obviously yeah. with campus corner in the background, the stadium, you know, in the backdrop. Yeah. Uh, the, and, and I even thought also, you know, you could put it right there in the Southeast corner, kind of on that concourse above like section 36, where you've got the field, press box in the background there's definitely a little bit more room there but yeah uh, th- that'll that'll definitely be interesting to see again ex- excited that it's finally here bedlam's always a, f- a fun matchup but now the fact that you've got college game day in town I mean, it really just kind of raises that excitement level to a whole uh to, to a whole new point so but just kind of taking a look at these two teams like i said ou five and two overall four and two in the conference trailing oklahoma state in the standings by a game just kind of what are your some what, what are some of your initial thoughts when you when you look at this game man well, we kind of mentioned it a few weeks ago, but it really truly feels as if two programs are intersecting. One's on its way up as far as the season trajectory goes, and one's kind of on its way backwards. OSU got off to a fairly strong start, not considering the Tulsa game, which now that doesn't look all that surprising. Tulsa's ranked. All three teams in the state are ranked uh, right now. And so um, there was also some injuries, but uh, it felt like they got off to a pretty fast start otherwise, whereas OU was the complete opposite. And now, even though OSU OSU only has one loss, OU has two losses, it feels, I mean, obviously Vegas is telling us OU is a bigger favorite. And if, if all things go, you know, the way it should with the talent and, and the progression of these teams, it shouldn't be all that close who which coach has more pressure on him this weekend I don't know if it's one more than the other I mean Mike Gundy's not expected to win he's he's not expected to beat OU pretty much ever here's where I I think that there's a lot of pressure from OSU fans for him to start beating OU now when he hasn't done it in what 14 years he's been there 
Well, he's he's two and thirteen overall against OU in the entire time that he's been the head coach here. Here's where I kind of disagree with you on that. We knew coming into this year that it was going to kind of be, you know, you know, quotation marks, a, a kind of a rebuilding year for OU. Brand new quarterback, you're replacing a lot of key contributors on both sides of the football. There was so much going into this year where if somebody was going to finally dethrone OU and win the Big 12, prevent OU from winning a sixth straight, you know, conference championship, this was going to be the year to do that. And the reason why I think that there's so much pressure on Mike Gundy at this point is because this is the best defense that he's had in his 15 years at Oklahoma State. He's got a first-round running back. He's got a Bolitnikoff winner at the receiver position, Tylen Wallace. Don't know how, you know, how much playing time he's going to get. If he's going to be healthy, we'll dive into that here in a little bit. But kind of very similar to what we said with Texas a, few, uh, a month or so ago, you know, having Sam Ellinger, a veteran team like that, now it's in a position where OSU's coming to Norman on Saturday where if you're going to knock OU off, this is going to be your best chance to do it because OU is only going to continue to get better as we move on to 2021 and further into the next decade because you're going to start having, you know, uh, another batch of Lincoln Riley recruits, another batch of Alex Grinch getting his guys into that speedy system. So I think that there's a lot of pressure on Mike Gundy going into this weekend because really it's if again you haven't you haven't ever beat OU but twice in the last 15 years. If you're going to do it, now's probably going to be your best chance to try to to try to get over the hump and do that. Well, that's exactly why I think the pressure is less on him is because he's only beaten OU twice in the last 16 years. But this is so his, that's the yeah. expectation is to not beat OU. Whereas if, when you're at Texas, it doesn't matter if the record's, you know, somewhat lopsided over the last five years necessarily. You're Texas. You think that you're better than OU when you, you know, start every season. And at that point in the season, OU and Texas were both limping into the Cotton Bowl with, with off, a, off a loss. After that game went to what four overtimes? Ever since that point, everyone's basically gone on the side of OU and go, gone. Well, OU is basically going to beat OSU. It's it's going to happen, and OU has continued to progress that way. And then OSU lost to Texas a few weeks back, so no one really expects OSU to win this game. I don't think outside of some hardcore fans and Stillwater that have some really orange colored glasses. Yeah, and I definitely think that OU has the pieces at the right positions to be able to give OSU all sorts of fits, but also at the same time, too, Oklahoma State has a couple, you know, big-time pieces, look at, looking at a guy like Chuba Hubbard, Tylen uh, Wallace, you know, OU, it's, it's been the same story over the last four or five years. It's the OU secondary against big time wide receivers out on the outside. So th there's there's gonna be there's gonna be some give and take going into this weekend. I, I like OU's chances and we'll kind of get into our predictions, you know, a little a little bit later. But I, I like OU's chances in this coming into it. You know, I, I think that there were three things. Um, I kind of jotted down three different areas where I think OU is going to have an advantage, three different areas where I think Oklahoma State's going to have an advantage. So just kind of starting with with OSU, and then we'll swing it over to the other side. First advantage for me that I think OSU is going to have, like I said, is Tylen Wallace versus that OU, OU secondary, the OU corners, Jane Davis, Trey Brown. Tylen Wallace is a you know a little bit more biz, bigger physical receiver that has the ability to make those plays down the field. I think in a situation like this, very similar to what we saw Alex Grinch go to late in the second half against Texas and especially in the overtime period, I would like to see Alex Grinch throw Woody Washington out there not not necessarily to you know just to be like on an island against Tylen Wallace or to you know follow him wherever he goes, but in a situation like that where you've got to have a little bit more physicality out on the outside, you know whether it's you know press coverage, um, you know get get your hands on him, kind of throw his route concept off a little bit. 
I definitely want to see some rotation on that side of the field that Alex Grinch throws a bigger body type corner on the uh, on a, on a guy like Tylen Wallace. So is it as simple as that, or still more to overcome when it comes to covering Tylen Wallace? I think that is a pretty big concern. Now, Tylen Wallace didn't play against Kansas State. He, he had t- uh, tweaked a muscle. He should be good to go. But, you know, after he tore his ACL in 2019, he's he's still very good, but he's not quite the same guy that really torched us in 2018. So I think that that helps us quite a bit. I'd also like to think our defense looks a lot better than it did that year. So I, I do think he's I'm, tr- I'm trying to rack my mind if we've played anybody else, but he's probably the best receiver we've played all year. Maybe Joshua Moore, maybe one of the guys at Texas Tech, but I. Texas Tech doesn't really have a quarterback that can really help some of those guys find their their potential. Well, but. and if we're being honest either, I mean, you know, Spencer Sanders, I mean, his arm doesn't necessarily scare me. If anything, his legs do more than anything else. But, I mean, I, I think that that's a matchup where if, if Tylen Wallace doesn't play, I think OU has a chance to run away with this and hide. If he does play, that's obviously the, the, the matchup. That's the guy that you've got to shut down because I like OU's front seven against – Oklahoma State's offensive line, I think OU's going to have the really good, really good advantage up there and be able to stop the run and kind of get OSU into those, you know, predictable long second, long second, long third down plays. But number two bullet point that I had for me, and I think that you'll nod your head in agreements with this. Again, it's another secondary type thing, problem for OU. Jelani Woods, the cowboy back, I guess the position that they've got specifically for that OSU offense. Jelani Woods, six foot seven, 275 pound, kind of a tight end, kind of an H back. They do a lot of stuff with him on the end of the line of scrimmage, line him up in the slot. Here we go again, dude. Five foot nine Buki versus a, you know, pretty physical six foot seven guy. Jelani is not the most productive uh, receiver at that position. I want to say he's got, you know, maybe 10 or 15 catches all year long, got one touchdown, had a big play against Iowa state earlier in the year, but Kind of what we were, kind of what we allude to. It seems like every time you know we do one of these pregame previews, OSU is going to be silly not to attack Buki. Whether it's a you know a, a what was it Dylan Stone or feels like he's been there for ten years, uh, Jelani Woods, a bigger frame tight end. That honestly scares me a little bit, especially if you give Spencer Sanders time to throw the football. Yeah, I know there's been some concerns out of Stillwater that they haven't utilized Jelani Woods as much as they would like to. So that makes me feel a little bit better. I'm not really worried about Dylan Stoner matching up with Buki. I think he's got the speed, more, a lot more speed than, than a guy like Stoner. So not worried about that. But if they do come out and that's a game plan to get the ball to Jelani Woods, I think that's going to spell some trouble. But again, it still comes back to Spencer Sanders. He's doesn't seem to be much different than he was last year. He's a turnover machine and surprisingly is getting sacked a lot for a mobile quarterback. So I'm not, I'm not going to lose my mind over it. (laughs) Maybe I will on Saturday night if I see it happening, but I do like that Buki has played considerably better over the last three weeks or so. And by better, I mean, we haven't noticed him. (laughs) So uh, I think that's, I mean, that's honestly what makes a pretty good uh, safety and defensive back in some cases is you just don't notice them because they're they're not getting the ball thrown their way. And kind of to, to wrap out the advantage for OSU, and I'll throw it over to you, man. The OU left tackle position has been one that has been pretty pretty good. I would I would say you know it's it's kind of like Buki. It's it's not noticeable. You don't have uh, you know OU's not giving up a bunch of sacks. But Trace Ford, the uh, outside linebacker, kind of stand up rush guy for for Oklahoma State, sophomore here, Oklahoma kid, guy that. Uh, uh, a lot of OU fans thought that it was kind of a miss. OU should have recruited. I would 
you know, kind of make an argument. I like Nick Benito better at this point right now. Um, but Trace Ford versus whether it is an Eric Swenson or we see an Anton Harrison, I think that that's a huge matchup to watch. Spencer's blind side, got to be able to protect Spencer, keep him upright, prevent, you know, situations that are going to lead to, you know, put Spencer in a bad spot where he could possibly, you know, ha- have an errant throw or, uh, or a likely turnover type situation. So Trace Ford kind of seeing all the different things that OSU's defense does with him, kind of moving him around. I think that if the OU's left tackle spot can hold up in pass protection against him coming off the edge, um, I think that that's a huge advantage for for OU if they are able to do that. But, again, I'll have to, I'll have to see it to believe it because Tra- Trace Ford, probably other than Joseph Asai and Nick Benito, probably a top five edge rusher in this conference. Yeah, I think he's he's really good. He creates a lot of havoc in the backfield. Surprisingly only has – three sacks so far this year that is a little bit surprising for a guy that we hear his, his name called a lot um that he doesn't have a little bit more production but he's still making a big difference and you mentioned nick benito kind of transition over to an advantage i think OU really has is our defensive line versus their offensive line they've lost some guys throughout the year to to injuries and opt-outs being dismissed from the team and our defensive line seems to get better and better every game. We're, uh, we're seventh overall in the country with 3.7 sacks per game, whereas OSU is 75th in protecting the quarterback at giving up 2.83 sacks per game. So a guy like Nick Benito, who seems to be you know, pushing into the conversation of one of the best edge rushers in the nation, you know, a guy like him, Perkins, Perion Winfrey, if he's going to play more than three quarters a game, I think could uh, could really have some some big impacts on Saturday night. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, looking at uh, when I jot down some of the advantages that I think OU is going to have in this football game, first and foremost was the OU front seven against uh, Oklahoma State's offensive line. Obviously, we saw a, a little bit of a shuffle uh, around the poke offensive line, having a couple players leave the program before the start of the year. Now with some of the injuries that they've had, kind of we really don't know what to expect as far as who's going to be starting on the offensive line for OSU on Saturday night. But when you look at the productivity that OU's getting, especially after getting a guy like Ronnie Perkins back, he's a difference maker. Perrion Winfrey, I don't know how in the hell OSU's going to block him. They're not going to be able to do it one-on-one. That center's not good enough, and I like Perrion Winfrey in that matchup all day, all night long. So I think that it's going to be – I think that it's going to be huge. I think that – uh uh, not just Perry on Winfrey, but Ronnie Perkins, Isaiah Thomas. I think that they're going to be able to do some really good things, both in uh, in you know you know jamming the gaps in run defense, but also getting after the quarterback as well. And I cannot wait to watch Nick Benito, especially in those second, third, and long type things. I will say we've seen over the last couple of weeks against Texas Tech, Kansas, TCU, not the greatest matchups, but we've seen guys like Marcus Stripling and Jordan Kelly and Joshua Ellison step up and. It's not the entire game, but they'll make a key play here or there. And that adds up over time. So I'm curious to see, one, how much playing time those guys get, and are they still able to make those types of plays? Because uh, that that makes a huge difference And uh, to have that type of depth. And I think we really have that with uh, Ronnie Perkins and Isaiah Thomas right now, where you always have someone out there that's not tired, that is going to be an absolute beast uh, coming from the other side. So if we can continue to have that type of depth uh, right there in the middle too, that's that's going to be huge for us. Well, and it sounds like too that we're going to get LaRon Stokes back for for this weekend. So again, you talk about him, Marcus Stripling, another guy that's you know really come on has has had a lot of you know bright spots. Being able to throw those two guys in the rotation with a guy like Josh Ellison and you know Corey Roberson, Jordan Kelly, uh, you know that. That, that OU front seven, they're, they're pretty salty. And, again, talking about an, an inexperienced, banged-up OSU offensive line, 
if if OU can dominate the line of scrimmage on, on that side of the football, I, I again I, I don't see any way in which other than maybe Spencer Rattler turns the football over, OSU gets a couple big plays, maybe wins the special teams battle. Um, I, I like OU's chances in that game if they are able to uh, to dominate the line of scrimmage on defense. Get your thoughts on this one, number two, where I think OU's got a has got a big advantage. Take away the turnover issues. I think that OU has a big advantage right now at the quarterback position. Am I going too far in saying that because Highland Wallace has a turnover problem? Yes, we've seen it from Spencer Rattler. He's he's cleaned it up over the last three or four weeks, had the bad one against Kansas. But OU's got a pretty uh, a tremendous advantage at the quarterback position, wouldn't you agree? I wouldn't be surprised if Spencer Sanders came out and had a better game simply because Rattler's still a younger guy. But I think the talent differential is is pretty big. I will say this. I think OU can win in spite of a bad Spencer Rattler game. I don't think OSU can win with a bad Spencer Sanders game. Okay. I, I think that's a really good point. And uh, before before I get your last one or two OU advantages, I want to throw this one to you because I think that this one kind of goes – we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but coaching. I think that that's OU's biggest, biggest advantage, that entire staff. But also, Mike Gundy's a good football coach when he's not playing against OU. Two and thirteen over during his time as the head coach at Oklahoma State. I know that the, both both teams coming off a of bye week. You're going to give Lincoln Riley two weeks to prepare for this OSU de, for this OSU defense. Yes, they are a really good team. That that three three five kind of hybrid scheme that they run. Um, you know they, they do a lot of things with you know blitz packages, man to man coverage on the on the outside from their their quarterbacks playing pretty aggressively. But I, I really think that OU has a has a big time advantage at the coaching at the coaching position. And like I said, you give Lincoln Riley extra time to prepare. Gunny's going to have to come out with a, a few tricks up his sleeve because, like I said, I think OU has the has the potential if they're able to run the football and Spencer's able to play a turnover free game. I, I don't see any way in which OU doesn't win this game by you know ten to fourteen points at least. So um, huge coaching advantage for OU. Yeah, I would agree with that. Anything else as far as advantages when uh, OU or OSU have the football? Or I'm not quite all the way there on this thought line, but you'd like to think that our pass defense against them is a pretty big advantage right now simply because OSU is not the greatest passing offense. They're 76th in the nation in passing yards per game. And a lot of that's on Spencer Sanders and uh, and the fact that they also had Shane Illingworth early in the year and we're running a little bit more conservative offense. But looking around the OU defense, we've got depth at cornerback now. We've got three guys that we'd look at and go, man, these guys are pretty solid, each one of them on the field. You look at safety, I think, you know, uh, DeLaren Turner-Yell is, is really solid. I'm still not sold on uh, Pat Fields, but but uh, but now you've got, uh, I think, some depth at safety with uh, DeLaren Turner-Yell, and I'm blanking on um, the guy that came in and replaced him. Oh, Trey Norwood. Trey Norwood, thank you. Totally blanked on his name. But yeah, I, I think he got a little bit lucky on where he was situated and happened to just you know have a ball bounce right into his hands. But he earned playing time, and he continued that against Kansas. So you'd like to think there's a little bit more depth there, too, where okay, we feel comfortable putting some other guys out there. And I think that's going to be important for, for this matchup. And I think one of the biggest reasons why we've seen the secondary take a step forward in, in improving their play over the last month or so is because you're getting such good production out of your defensive line. <clears throat> when, when you're constantly putting a quarterback, you know whether it's a quarterback hurry, a quarterback sack, putting pressure on them, 
shrinking the amount of time that they have the ability to go through their progressions and really set their feet and, you know, fire a good football from the pocket. Um, when you're only asking your corners and, and, uh, and uh, safeties to cover a guy for two, three, four seconds, as opposed to seven or eight, like we've seen in years past, you can't cover anybody at the division one level for seven or eight seconds. Eventually somebody's going to get open. So uh, again, goes back to that uh, OU front seven. If they're, if they're able to get pressure, stop the run, put OSU in those, you know, long predictable passing downs. I think that just bodes well for OU on that side of the football. Yeah. OSU still averaging a respectable 190 yards on the ground per game. It's kind of middle of the road in the country right now. But Chuba Hubbard was averaging that by himself for several games last year. And with a running quarterback adding to that total, that's really not as good as they should be. Uh, Chuba Hubbard's been, I think, the second leading rusher a couple games already this year. In fact, last week or a couple weeks ago against Kansas State, he was really ineffective. And L.D. Brown was really the guy that they were riding. I think Hubbard made a huge mistake coming back for his senior year. Uh, He might. I mean, it's a weaker draft class for running backs, but it's hard to duplicate a 2000 yard rushing season. He should have sold high and now he's his, looking a little questionable. His stock couldn't have been any higher at the end of yeah. last year. 2000 yards coming back this year, uh, an unproven inexperienced offensive line. I mean, if anything, I think that this year has shown us that for Chuba Hubbard to be effective uh, on offense, he's got to, he's got to be able to have a really solid offensive line and really be able to give him some space to work with. And that's why I think you've seen a lot more production of L.D. Brown this year is because he's a guy, not only is he good out in space, but he can run in between the tackles uh, and, and, you know, chew up yards, turn a two-yard gain, fall forward into a four- and five-yard gain. So I don't think it's far off saying that Chuba might be the second-best running back on this team this year alone just because of the fact that you're not getting as good a production out of the offensive lineup in Stillwater. So, um, But that's definitely, definitely something to keep an eye on. Can't believe we waited this long to kind of dive into it, but there's a lot of injury questions going into this game. Well, you know, whether it's uh, for, for Oklahoma State, you know, Tylen Wallace didn't play last week. Chuba Hubbard's been nicked up. Honestly, for me, other than Tylen Wallace, I think that the biggest injury question that I think can have a huge impact on this game is their defensive back, Colby Harvell Peel. He, you know, he, he's a transfer, came in. I think he's been one of the best defensive backs in the Big, in the big 12 this year. If, if he's not out there to play, eh, I, I like my chances with Theo Weiss, Marvin Mims, Jane Hazelwood, you know, coming back for his second game after that ACL tear. So I think that, you know, OSU better have all hands on deck as we see what OU starting to do on the offensive side of the football. Yeah, I'm not really sure what situation is with Colby Harvell Peel. Some were saying that he had a hamstring injury against Texas. I saw some report that said he had a head injury. If he's got a head injury, you would, you would hope – for his sake, at least that he's ready to play this week, simply because if it's lasting this long, that's, that's not good. Um, A hamstring thing is something that can linger a while and can really slow you down, even if you are out there. So I think he's missed the last two weeks and then plus the bye week this week. week, So so if he's not back, you know, that's, that's definitely, um, you know, cause for concern on uh, for, for OSU. And then, you know, kind of what we, we alluded to, you know, after the after the Kansas game, you know, prior to the bye week, you know, it's, it's the same thing. Spencer Rattler, what's the what's the status of his hip? You know, obviously he came back and played um, quite a bit after taking that shot against Kansas last two, two weekends ago. Lincoln came out in the post game and said, you know, um, he could have played the entire game if, if need be. So um, what's his status going to be like? Is he going to be 100 percent be able to, you know, you know, make every throw, have a, you know, put all of his weight behind it and be able to throw, make every throw that we've been accustomed to seeing over the first half of the season. And then honestly, dude, for me, 
Austin Stogner, that that's a huge one for me. You know, Lincoln came out during this Big 12 tel, you know, conference today, said that he's doing better, but he's still pretty sore, hasn't practiced yet in the last seven, eight days. So we're going to throw him out there today, see what he could do. His health and, and ability to be at 100% on Saturday, I think it's huge for OU. Yeah, I would agree. I'm not really concerned about it at this moment. I think he'll at least play. He might not be 100%, but you'd like to feel a lot better with with a Braden Willis supposedly coming back. He's a really athletic guy that hasn't hardly played at all this year, but he could potentially have a similar type of impact that Stogner does on a weekly basis. And then I think to some extent, Jeremiah Hall could also fill in in some of those situations. He's probably not going to run a 30-yard route down the seam, but getting that five to seven yards on a critical third down, you know, he can do that. And not to discount him, he's he's run some downfield routes and caught some longer passes uh, even as early as, as this year. But uh, I think he's more of a shorter down uh, and distance type of guy that can still be a good security target right in the middle of the field. And, and then also you've got Jaden Hazelwood coming. He's already played uh, against Kansas. He looks decent. But getting a little bit more run, maybe he's the type of guy that you look to in the middle of the field as well. So I feel like there's a lot of options that we can go with if Stogner isn't ready that can do some of the things he does. Yeah, and, and it's, like I said, given, given Lincoln two weeks to put a game plan together with the guys that he knows he's going to have available, um, I, I, I'm not too worried. You know, I, I want Stogner to play. I think he just adds another element, and he's truly uncoverable. Talking about a guy of that size, that frame, that build. Honestly, can't wait to see what Jaden Hazelwood did, what what he can do on Saturday. Hopefully, he gets a little bit more run. Honestly, I would love to see him on the outside as well. Maybe taking some reps away from from fourteen. I think that Drake Stoops, you know, he's earned the he's earned the right to play. He's been pretty consistent he, when when his number's been called. So, um, again, Rattler, Stogner, we're gonna get Stokes back. Sounds like Braden Willis. Sounds like he's gonna be back from some of the stuff he's been putting out on social media. So, I think. All things considered, seems like both teams are going to be pretty healthy if Tylen Wallace and Harvell Peel come back for this weekend. Um, but obviously, you know, you don't want anybody to be out. I want both these teams at 100%. That way there's no no excuses. We hear it year in, year out from, from Oklahoma State. Every time they lose, there's always a reason why. So give me both teams at 100% because that's, that's what we want to see. We want to see a really good football game. Adam, last question for you before we kind of, you know, transition to what's going on around the country. What does a win this weekend mean? for both of these teams, starting with OU. For OU, it means we're still big brother. <laughs> and I don't think a, <laughs> a, a loss changes that fact, of course. But but yeah, obviously, it's a, it's a major step forward to proving what we've thought ever since the end of that Texas game, which is OU is really the best team in this conference. And they're, they're on track going for their sixth straight Big 12 championship title. And I don't think there's a real chance at a playoff berth, but at least kind of put them on the very outskirts of a dark horse conversation at least that's something and maybe go into you know this uh 2021 season with a ton of momentum with the way they're finishing out the year so i think it could be a pretty big pretty big win i still think west virginia is going to be really tough the following week maybe tougher than this game but uh but i certainly good to get bragging rights in state what, what kind of one of the, co- the cool things about this upcoming weekend, uh, the TV schedule really kind of worked out. You know, o- Oklahoma needs Kansas, Kansas State to lose one more game. And lo and behold, Iowa State and Kansas State are going to be playing earlier in the day on Saturday. And they should be finishing up, you know, right before OU takes the field. So OU will know going into that game if they, tr- if they control their own destiny. Because if, you, if Iowa State knocks off K-State, OU beats OSU. 
OU wins out, they are guaranteed to be in Arlington for the Big 12 championship game. So um, that's definitely going to be another storyline to kind of pay attention to. Obviously, you got to win the game Saturday night, uh, but we also need a little bit more help. And then also, you have kind of you kind of disagree with me. I think that this is a, a bigger game for, for Mike Gundy and, and OSU than it is for OU. Obviously, OU, they want to keep the momentum going, want to win six straight. You lose this weekend, chances are almost out the window. But for OSU, Best defense that they've had probably in the last 15 years. Chuba Hubbard, 2,000-yard Doak Walker, you know, if probably – he won, did he win it last year? Did did Chuba win it last I, year? If not, he should have. He might have. I, I don't recall. And you got Tylen Wallace. This is the best – going into the year, this was going to be the best team that OSU thought they had in, in the last 10 years, ever since the Brandon Ween team uh, a few years ago. So this is your chance, Gundy. This is your chance, Oklahoma State. If, if, if you're going to finally get over the hump and knock off OU – and at least put yourself in a position to compete for a Big 12 championship, you got to go down to Norman on Saturday and win. So, um, huge game for both programs. I like OU, and we'll give our predictions a little bit later. But let's kind of go around the around the country, dude. Starting in the Big 10, there's been a lot of ups and downs in this conference, a lot of a lot of expectations on teams, you know, going into the year. We thought that we were going to see Michigan take another step. Penn State, before Micah Parsons opting out, you know, the people thought that they were going to be two really good challengers for uh, the, the Big 12 or the Big 10 conference uh, with Ohio State. And now Penn State hasn't won a game, and Michigan, it seems like any day now, Jim Harbaugh is going to be fired. And, hell, Indiana is a top-10 program in the country, and I'm not talking about basketball either. So what's going on in the Big Ten right now, dude? Yeah, I'm, Penn State really got hit pretty hard by a lot of different things around COVID, but they should still have a lot more depth than they do and should still be beating some of these teams that are put in front of them. Nebraska beat them fairly soundly. It did come down to – I think the last play of the game eventually, but for the most part of the game, Nebraska controlled that matchup and it really wasn't because Nebraska was playing really well or looked so much better. Penn state was just really bad. So they've got some problems over there in happy Valley. I mentioned a few weeks back that I think James Franklin is really the guy that Texas fans should be looking at a lot harder. Um, He's a guy that's not really appreciated very much uh, there in state college and would probably be a really great fit. I think, his recruiting would certainly go up at Texas. He's very well respected, would be great with donors and just bridging a lot of different uh, gaps there between a lot of different groups in Austin. But he might be playing himself out of that type of consideration if the Texas job opens up. Michigan, I don't know what to think of them. I, I really think if they didn't have, you know, funny looking helmets that were so unique and didn't play in a 100,000 seat stadium, no one would really be hyping them up or care all that much because. Yeah, they they were great back in the 1920s and the 1890s <laughs> and a long time ago. And and really, they've been owned by Ohio State for probably 40 of the last 50 years. They, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Indiana's a surprise. Wisconsin looks really solid. It's going to be interesting to see how COVID cancellations affect, you know, who gets to go to the championship game, who's eligible for the playoffs out of that conference, because any day now there could be, you know, a team that gets you know really infected and really changes the schedule for some of these. Well, uh, matchups. We'll, we'll talk about it here in a little bit in a little bit when we, you know, transition over the SEC, what happened with Will Muschamp. But um, if anything, we saw that with South Carolina following Will Muschamp or firing Muschamp, it's that even though COVID is going on right now, you know, teams, big time programs like Michigan and South Carolina, 
they're not afraid to fire a coach right now, even if the buyout is a really high number. So it was really surprising for me watching Michigan and Wisconsin. Again, Wisconsin got hit really, really hard with COVID, had to shut down you know, the program for a week or so, but haven't played a game in three weeks. And then they just came out and kicked Michigan's ass in Ann Arbor. I mean, 49-11 on your home field. And essentially in that second half, it almost looked like Harbaugh lost, you know, lost his team, looked like they didn't get they didn't care, uh, the stop playing. So again, I, I don't know what it's gonna take. It, you know, it, it might honestly it might take Ryan Day and Ohio State put 70 on Michigan for them to you know finally, you know, let Harbaugh go. But um, well, I think they're probably waiting on the Jets to come in and <laughs> buy him out so they don't have to. Let me ask you this, though. Is the problem Jim Harbaugh, is it a whole other level at Michigan? Because, I mean, we all thought that he was a really good coach, had tremendous success in the NFL. He's been kind of, you know, labeled as a quarterback guru, quarterback whisperer, really hasn't had any success in terms of building a quarterback. And, you know, he's he's what, beaten – he hasn't beaten – he's never beaten Ohio State, and he's beaten Michigan State one time in the last six years. I'd say part of it's him, part of it's not him. I mean, playing in the same division as Penn State and Ohio State and honestly Michigan State with his record is really, really tough, but especially Ohio State. I mean, even the guys before him couldn't beat them. So he really also hasn't had much of a pipeline of quarterbacks. He he had some some transfers from Iowa that were kind of like, eh. He, he got uh, the transfer from Ole Miss, who was kind of, eh. And this guy that he's got now seems like maybe the best prospect that he's had in a while, but season's got off to such a bad start that I don't know. It doesn't seem like the hope's really there for, for anything to change. So I I'm sure the NFL will probably convince themselves that, yeah, this retread, which he was good with the 49ers can still coach and could be the guy that Sam Darnold needs, but, or Trevor Lawrence, if they end up drafting Trevor Lawrence. Yeah. 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 So um, I think he'll, he'll get a nice job um, in the NFL when that uh, probably by the end of the season. Last thing with the Big Ten right now, um, obviously game days in Norman, but another huge marquee game in the Big Ten is number nine, Indiana, traveling to Columbus to take on Ohio State on Saturday, uh, 11 a.m. kickoff. You give Indiana Indiana any shot whatsoever, or Indiana, even though they've got a 4-0 record, you know, they beat a bad Michigan team at the very end. They beat a bad Michigan State team. They beat Rutgers. I think Northwestern was the other victory that they had. So. North- uh, Northwestern still undefeated. Uh, who, who they beat, it they they beat, beat Rutgers, Michigan State, Michigan, Penn State. Penn State. Okay. Yeah. So again, you know, n- names on the you know names on the jerseys. That's kind of a pretty good resume. Obviously, it's been pretty underwhelming what we've seen from Michigan and Penn State. But do you give Indiana any shot against Justin Fields on Saturday morning? I do. Uh, it's going to be in an empty Ohio Stadium, so that helps a lot. I don't think that Ohio State has that edge pass rusher that really really scares you like like a Chase Young or some of the other guys that they've had in the past, like a Bosa brother. Uh, so I think there's, I think there's a chance. I think Indiana has a really good playmaker and Michael Penix, again, one of the best names in college football. So they have a chance. I still think Ohio state should probably win by two or three touchdowns and it probably won't be close, but they have a shot. And I think this might be the only shot that anyone has at Ohio state until probably the big 10 championship game when they maybe play Wisconsin. Maybe if Northwestern. Gets, we'll if see. If it gets to that point. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm in total agreement. I think that from a skill position standpoint, uh, Indiana probably has the athletes to keep up with Ohio State, you know, especially early on, maybe in the first half. But I think as the game wears on, 
that's when you're going to start to see in the trenches on the offensive and defensive line, Ohio State be able to assert their will. Um, and, and I think that uh, Justin Fields has been absolutely fantastic uh, d- during the season. So expecting him to have a big game. And uh, I think the spread right now is at 20 and a half. So it's that high for a reason. Ohio State's way too talented. And uh, I think that it'll be competitive for maybe the first quarter, maybe even better part of the first half. But Ohio State's got too much, too much talent. So I think they pull away. Uh, and win by three scores late. So here's a kind of an interesting question that I wanted to poise to you. Obviously, we saw Will Muschamp getting fired at South Carolina. You know, South Carolina lost to Ole Miss 59-42 to 42 this past weekend, you know, making their record 2-5 and five on the year. Muschamp in his five seasons in South Carolina with a record of 28-30, he's been ousted now. What other programs right now that still have their head coach, you know, at the position – what other programs need new coaches right now that you would say? Because there's two that come to mind for me right at the top, Michigan and Texas. you agree with those two? Is there a sleeper? What would you do? I mean, I mean the jury's still out on Texas and Michigan until they actually fire their coach. But I feel like Michigan's fairly certain. Texas is still kind of interesting because they still only have two losses. It feels like they have a lot more. They certainly have some losses off the football field this year. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's not for certain there uh, because if they can't get Urban Meyer, can they spin that to get somebody else that actually makes sense? They almost might be better off just bringing Tom Herman back for another year. I, well, I don't know because the fan base would be so upset if they don't get him. <clears throat> well, I hear there's a pretty good coach at Liberty that might be a uh, <laughs> viable or at least get an interview or something because uh, this is flames a, are rolling. This is a PSA to everyone out there. Keep your hands off my coach. <laughs> you can't you can't sit around and criticize Liberty and make fun of Hugh Freeze and saying, oh, it's double standards and everything. And then say, oh, well, Hugh Freeze should go to this school and he should leave Liberty to go to that school. You can't have it both ways. I'm just saying everything that uh, everything that I've read and, and heard, you know, he, he'll definitely be one of the first guys that gets a phone call from South Carolina. But that's such a, a such a tough job to have when you when you've got to compete against you know, Clemson in that area, Georgia, uh, Florida, other members of the SEC conference. I mean, that's that's a tough situation to walk into. And, you know, kind of the thing with Michigan and Texas, I think that Michigan – it's interesting because is there anybody else out there that you could go get that would put you right back up there on the same tier as Ohio State? Or am I, I – I think Luke Fickle's interesting. I don't think he would take that. He he was kind of in the running for Michigan state and he didn't seem to want that job either. So Michigan, I don't know is that much better at this moment. Plus he's an Ohio state guy. I think Matt Campbell is certainly worth uh, a hard look. I know he's not super exciting, but you have to also um, adjust for the resources and talent pool that he has available to him at Iowa state. Uh, So he's got them playing way above, you know, what they should be. I think you also look in, into the MAC. There's really only one coach that would interest me in the MAC, and that's at Buffalo with Lance uh, Leipold or, or Leipold. I'm not sure how you say his name, but he's had them very respectable. But I, other than that, I don't know if there's a big Michigan coaching tree. Alex Grinch's name comes up quite a bit. He might not nope, be ready for a job nope, that big. Nope, but... no, I, don't, I, don't even want, <laughs> I don't even want that mentioned. Um, but he played his college ball in, in Michigan. So he's going to get rumored for those types of jobs. Yeah. I I think Matt Campbell is an interesting one. You know, he's an Ohio guy. He knows the Midwest. He'd be able to recruit that area. I think Chris Kleiman at Kansas state is also one. Uh, Another thing very, very similar to, to Matt Campbell where doesn't have, you know, doesn't have the same elite talent as the other teams in the conference, like a Texas or an Oklahoma, but 
Chris Kleiman's 2-0 against uh, Lincoln Riley and always gets the most out of his guys every single Saturday. So, But, he, again, wh- whether it's Texas or Michigan, you've got to have a home run hire to be able to you know, put yourself back into, into that position where – uh, you know, you're battling not just for conference championships, but also uh, you're, you're competing for national championships also. So it's going to be interesting. Obviously, Texas still mathematically has a chance to, to win the Big 12. So I don't know if it's just uh, the boosters down in Austin waiting for that to be mathematically eliminated for them um, before they, you know, roll out the Brinks truck and, and try to get Urban Meyer to come down to Austin. I don't know if, honestly, I don't know who would want to take that job. There's just so much more that goes into it besides being a football coach. you got to deal with politics, the boosters, um, the expectations. But, you know, maybe Urban Meyer does want to dabble into it. Uh, uh, hopefully, he's in good, hopefully he's in good health conditions and uh, has the opportunity to do so. I, as an OU fan, I don't want to see it. I hope, I hope they bring Herman back for another year, but uh, definitely something to look at. Other, big, other game in the Big 12, K-State, Iowa State. We touched on a little bit earlier. That's a huge game for OU fans are going to have their eye on. How nervous should OU fans be about Kansas State going up to Ames and, and knocking off the, the Cyclones? Very, because I don't trust Iowa State, and I also don't trust Kansas State either. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to get out of them. They played a really tight game with Oklahoma State a few weeks back, so that, it could be an Iowa State blowout. It could be a K-State close win. I really don't know what to think about that, but that could throw a huge wrench in it to – you know, if K-State goes up there and wins, then we're starting to look at, okay, what are tiebreaker scenarios? And I don't think that those are a discussion that we start, we want to start having as OU fans because we're losing tiebreakers to K-State and Iowa State in most cases. Well, if, if K-State goes up to Ames and beats Iowa State, then you've got to root for Texas to beat Iowa State to give uh, Iowa State three losses. Then OU would have the tiebreaker over Texas. And so, guess who I also don't trust? Texas. So <laughs> yeah. I'd much rather just Iowa State just end it you know, on Saturday and make yeah. it official. And then OU goes out and takes care of business. And I, I'm not that. overly, I'm not overly nervous about that game on Saturday. I don't trust Brock Purdy whatsoever, but I do trust Brees Hall and that Cyclone defense to show up. So I think it'll be a low scoring affair. Uh, I, I could see it definitely being like a 24 17 type game. Um, but, but yeah, I, I don't think OU fans should be too worried, but I guarantee you every OU fan will uh, ha- have their eyeballs on the TV or checking the scores on their phone throughout the day. So, Adam, kind of one, one of the things that I kind of wanted to dive into, I thought this would be kind of a fun topic. Obviously, we pay attention to see, you know, the AP and the coaches poll that comes out every Sunday, what kind of movement is there, especially when OU loses a game or two early. How do they go about climbing back up into the rankings as the season progresses? I've got the AP poll in front of me right now. I don't know if you had a chance to pull it up, but OU's ranked right now at 18th in the AP Top 25 poll. How many teams ranked ahead of, of OU would the Sooners beat or lose to? And I thought what I would do is uh, I'd, start, I'd start at number one because I think that there's maybe four or five teams I think definitely do beat OU right now. Um, so just kind of want to get your thoughts on that. I'm going to give you kind of what I think the spread would be on it. And so just let me know yes or no, agree, disagree, what's your thoughts on that. Um, Alabama, I don't nope. think OU – yeah, no chance. No chance. Notre Dame, number two. If you'd asked me two weeks ago, I would have said very good chance, almost 50-50. I'm thinking less and less now. I'd give OU maybe a 30% chance of winning that game. Yeah, I, I would say that that game probably what opens up at Notre Dame minus six or so, maybe a little bit closer yeah. to 10. Uh, Notre Dame just has a, a really good really good offensive line. And uh, like I said, I think that would be – I think that would be – Probably of those top four or five teams, OU's best potential matchup to try to knock one of those off. Ohio yeah. State, no. Clemson, no. Oh. 
Texas A&M on a neutral field. I would take OU in that right now. Okay. Yeah. I would yeah. too. I think that'd be a pick em. I think that's pretty even. Yeah. I don't think A&M's played enough good opponents for me to really consider them that dominant. Yeah. They've played one good team right now. Okay. Two. Sorry. Florida. That, that looks like a good win now. That looks like a pretty good win against Florida. Uh, that's, they did uh, get blown out of the water against Alabama, though. So, well, who doesn't though? Yeah, but, that's uh, true. But yeah, that, that was a big win at Kyle Field for AM to knock off Florida. I know Florida was missing quite a few starters on defense, but that's still still a game that they weren't expected to win. That they they got the W. So, Cincinnati. Man, that one's tough. Cincinnati's got a very very good defense, but you would like to think that a Group of Five program. Over time, as the game winds on, you know, oh, you can wear them down with a lot more depth. But I, it's it's probably as close as you can get as a G5 program to making me think OU is going to have a lot of trouble. That's why if OU runs the table and does make it to a New Year's Six Bowl, I would almost rather than play a Texas A&M or a Florida instead of a, a non-Power 5 program like Cincinnati or BYU because essentially you're in a no-win situation if it comes down to that because, one, if you do win – all good you were supposed to do that but then if you lose and it's just it just looks bad all the way around so um i like cincinnati's quarterback just like i do with byu um i think ou byu would be a really entertaining entertaining game to watch byu I, they haven't played a really tough schedule i think they have some really good talent but i wonder i really truly wonder is it distributed evenly across the team or is it just a couple of really good players on offense I would take OU in that situation. I'm going to run down the rest of these. You tell me. Stop me if you disagree with anything. Indiana, no. Wisconsin, no. Oregon, no. Miami, no. Georgia, they don't have the offense to keep up with OU. Oklahoma State, we'll find out on Saturday. Coastal Carolina, Marshall, and I know Iowa State's already beaten them, but again, put them on a field tomorrow. I like OU against all those. Coastal Carolina and Marshall, any chance with those two? I think Marshall would be a blowout. I think Coastal would be close for at least a half. Uh, Wisconsin and Oregon, I, I don't think OU would be favored against Wisconsin. I am not sure about Oregon. It's still too early to tell on them. They've got some talent, but they also had a lot of guys opt out. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. That, it's that's hard true. to measure a team that's played two games versus a team that's played seven. And that's why I think, like, given, like, if you line them up tomorrow, I think that because OU does have – more games under their belt, I think that that does kind of favor them uh, against a team like Wisconsin, especially, you know, starting a, a third-string quarterback who, again, has been really good, but uh, uh, th- that'd be fun to watch. It's also Wisconsin dominated a bad Illinois team and what seems to be a bad Michigan team. Really bad So Michigan OU would team. be easily, by far and away, the best team that they've played this cool. year. So yeah. OU put them on the field, lose to maybe five, six teams uh, that are ranked yeah, ahead yeah. of them. So, yeah, cool. Well, kind of what you were alluding to, college football playoff rankings, they come out on the 24th of this month. Who's your top four right now? I think you you really like the situation that Notre Dame is in because even if they lose to Clemson in the ACC championship game, if they're undefeated otherwise, they're basically in unless that game is a blowout. Clemson, you like their chances as well because they'll have Trevor Lawrence back. They'll be back at full strength supposedly on defense as well. They're playing a lot closer to home. They should be able to beat Notre Dame at full strength. And so you like both of those teams. Alabama seems like they have a fairly clear path, although Florida seems to be getting stronger as well. And then that fourth spot is really up in the air. I, I 
even if Oregon goes undefeated, they haven't looked that impressive thus far. USC hasn't looked that good. So I don't know where Oregon can get any big wins to really bump their resume. And they're going to have the fewest amount of conference games played there. I don't think you can give it to a Pac-12 team. So at this point, you're looking at A&M, who quite possibly will run the table. Their toughest game remaining is Auburn, maybe. Auburn, yeah. I, yeah. The Ole Miss game got canceled this week. I don't know if that's going to be able to get rescheduled. They also may not play enough games uh, the way things are going either. So I don't know. Are Cincinnati, BYU? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. And, and at this point right now, Alabama and Clemson – or Alabama and uh, – oh, shoot. Alabama and Ohio State, they're definitely your two shoe-ins right now. It, it's definitely an easier path for both Clemson and Notre Dame. Clemson, simple. You went out, beat Notre Dame in the ACC yeah. championship game. You're in. But also, I left Ohio State out. Yeah, that, that obviously takes A&M out. Yeah, of it then. yeah. yeah. And, but then also, too, if you're Notre Dame, either went out, beat Clemson again, or even if you don't beat Clemson in the ACC championship game, they do have Trevor Lawrence coming back. You play a tough, you know, close ball game with them and then hope Alabama beats Florida so that you don't have two SEC teams make it. I think you could make a pretty compelling argument for, for you know, maybe Notre Dame and – Clemson to make it in. As far as Texas A&M goes, they've got to win out, obviously. Alabama needs to beat Florida, and then I think you need Notre Dame to beat Clemson again. That way you don't have two ACC teams represented. I think that's probably A&M's best chance to get into it. Cincinnati and BYU. Cincinnati's got three games left. UCF, Temple, Tulsa, definitely not a cakewalk. Could easily see them dropping one, maybe two of those games. Not um, but they've got a very good chance of finishing undefeated. BYU, they're 8-0 right now with games against North Alabama and San Diego State. They will be 10-0 at the end of the year. Still going to need a ton of help. But honestly, dude, if it comes down to it where you've got, say it is a Notre Dame and an Ohio State and an Alabama, and it comes down to a, 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 a Texas A&M with one loss or an undefeated Cincinnati team that's blown out everybody that they've stepped on the on the field with, do you think Al? Do you think Texas A&M gets the nod over Cincinnati, or is I hope uh, not. Cincinnati will have the better resume at that point because I think UCF and Memphis and SMU and Houston those are all decent wins. Uh, A&M will have one win over Florida and Auburn, and that's about yeah. It. <laughs> well, I I don't know if Auburn's going to be ranked at the time they're kind of coming on, but again, a honestly, I think what A&M is going to be able to hang their hat on is. One, we beat a we beat a two loss Florida, and our only loss was a thirty five point loss to uh, Alabama on the road to Tuscaloosa. So, uh, I think that if there is ever going to be a year where you see a non Power Five team make it in to the college football playoff, um, I would hope that Cincinnati would sneak in and get that fourth spot. So, um, I I will say this too with Ohio State, they've won three games. They're three and zero including this Saturday against Indiana, they have four games remaining and they did have their game against Maryland canceled. That was because of Maryland's problems at what, you know, is there a point where Ohio state starts having problems internally? And from what we've seen that at least cancels one game, maybe two. So if that's taking, if that happens, takes out half of their schedule that's remaining, they could finish five and oh, I don't I don't, I don't know if that hits the threshold for the playoff. or They're in no matter what. I kind of feel that way, too, just because people say, oh, they're they're good. We thought they were good before, so we'll just give them the spot. Well, which, it, but I kind of feel like you need to, you need to actually yeah. play some games. And, and I think that's gonna, definitely going to be one of the most compelling things to um, 
listen and hear from the the committee chairman whenever the initial rankings do come out is you know what what uh, criteria do they value the most is it going to be you know your resume the the best wins that you have is it going to be the number of games that you've played you know whether it is you've you're 10 and 0 you're 10 and 0 Cincinnati versus a a 4 and 0 5 and 0 you know Ohio State or a, a one loss Texas A&M so it'll definitely be exciting to see what criteria they truly value the most uh, in the room for that playoff committee but um, honestly, at this point right now, expand it to eight. Let let uh, Marshall, let Cincinnati, let BYU duke it out and uh, see, see what we can do. I mean, 2020 has been crazy enough already. Um, hell, why not? I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to see, you know, 25, 30 different bowl games. So expand it and let some of those other teams have a shot at it. It's a slippery slope, my friend. That's all I have to say. 2020, let it, we'll let it be. Let it be. I don't, again, no, probably no chance that it happens. But, I mean, at some point, you know, I, I'd like to see, you know, throw, throw Cincinnati out there against, you know, Clemson or Notre Dame, see what they can do. I think I know what the outcome is going to be, but, you know, if, if they go undefeated, um, I think that they've, you know, definitely earned the right to be in that conversation. So uh, let's move on to our, uh, our uh, I guess, fourth, fifth, fifth and final segment, our betting card. Um, had a couple games last week for both of us get scratched due to COVID. I feel like I would have gone four and one. Just gonna go ahead and throw that out there. But uh, <laughs> uh, I got back in. I got back to five hundred. Went two and one last week. Got me back to fifteen and fifteen on the year. Another two and two week for you, uh, bringing your record up to twenty one and nine. Nicely done. Um, we've both got five picks this week. As far as I know, all five of these games are still on. Again, we'll cross our fingers. See how many actually make it to the finish line, but. Uh, go ahead and start us off with your first game on your uh, betting card for, what is it, week 13 now? Week 12? Yeah, first game, I've got App State at Coastal Carolina over on the 51 and a half. Both these teams can score quite a bit of points. They both have some decent defenses, but most of the competition they play is pretty overmatched. So I'm totally banking on the offenses to at least one of them to light it up, if not both of them. Yeah, I'm, I, I grabbed that game as well as soon as I saw it. 51 and a half points. App State scoring 32 a game. I like their quarterback, Zach Thomas, what they can do. And then Coastal's just been Coastal's been on fire on offense, averaging almost 40 a game. So uh, between those two, I definitely uh, – I think that they can definitely get to 52 points combined on Saturday. Um, I'll, uh, I'll lead it off number two for me. Uh, I'm going K-State traveling to Ames against Iowa State. It looks like it's going to be rainy. looks like it's going to be windy, kind of, you know, not some ideal weather uh, up in Ames on Saturday. I'm taking the under on 53.5 points again. I think that that's a low-scoring affair. I think both teams are going to run the ball primarily. Um, give me a turnover, too. Uh, I, I think that that game goes goes under on, on Saturday. Hitting an under is pretty tough and a little nerve-wracking. I hate but, betting the under. But, but yeah, I think that's – uh, as good of any pick for an under there. Um, I also have a game kind of over in that direction of the country, Wisconsin at Northwestern uh, over on the 42 and a half. That's just so low. And I know both teams play pretty solid defense, but Wisconsin and Northwestern have their best quarterbacks that each of them have had in who knows how long. So um, thinking that that's just going to be a, it might be a very close over, but I think it has a very good shot of going over. I'm going to piggyback off that as well. Um, I'm glad you saw my sheet before we went on here. I've got Wisconsin and Northwestern also. I'm, I'll take the over 42 and a half. 
Um, very similar to what it looks like. It's going to be an Ames. Rain and wind is going to be a factor. Um, I, I think that Wisconsin, their rushing attack, I don't know if Northwestern is going to be able to stop them all four quarters. So I think they get in the high 20s, maybe low 30s by themselves. And I trust Northwestern to score maybe two touchdowns to, to get it on the over. So uh, I'll take the over 42 and a half, like yourself, Wisconsin at Northwestern. So, uh, And that's an underrated matchup, undefeated teams against each other potentially for the big 10 West uh, there might be the better matchup of the big 10 uh, on Saturday. So yeah, there, there's a bunch of good games on Saturday, not just the one here in Norman or the one up in Columbus. So uh, what, what's number three for you? Yeah. A game that's not projected to be that great by Vegas, Kentucky. I'm taking them. They're plus 30 at Bama. If you remember a couple weeks back, Bama wasn't even that big of a favorite against Tennessee. Now it is at home in Tuscaloosa. But I do think Kentucky is a decent enough program that they should be able to keep it within uh, that 30 points, maybe a, a late cover. They're not very dynamic on, on offense necessarily, but they're solid enough on defense. They should be able to slow Bama just enough. Yeah, they're, they're really sad on defense. Um, I took a look at that one, honestly – if I do decide to play the Alabama game, which they've been really good to me on those first half lines, just coming out and blitzing everybody and getting up by a huge margin before halftime gets there. Uh, I, I think that's a really good pick. Kentucky's got a good defense. Surely they can stay within four touchdowns and a field goal of, of Alabama. Um, I think that's a real good pick uh, for me. I'm going back to the big 12. Uh, I'm going up to Lawrence, um, Texas. Again, we don't know what we're going to get week in week out from, from Texas, but a 28-point favorite on the road against possibly the worst Power 5 football team that I've ever seen uh, in the Kansas Jayhawks. Surely Texas can go on the road and, and cover four touchdowns uh, against Les Miles in Kansas on Saturday. You would think – it seems like every year Kansas gets worse and worse. You may have missed this, but I think it was Eddie who tweeted out that the Texas-Kansas game has basically been a one-possession game for the last four years, though. <laughs> And I, I don't necessarily know that the Texas offense is going to be able to take advantage of everything. They're going to get in their own way with Sam Ellinger's inaccuracy and just the way that they play. So I, that's a little risky, but on paper, it should, should be a blowout. Easily. Well, Kansas upset him a few years ago in Lawrence, and honestly, they should have won last year in Austin. So uh, I, I don't know what it is, but uh, maybe, maybe this is uh, – Kansas always treats this as their Super Bowl. So, surely Sam Ellinger and that offense can score and, and beat Kansas by, by 28 points. If not, then um, shame on me for trusting Tom Herman. So, uh, <laughs> what, what's what's number four for you? Or I tell you what, give me, give me four and five – give me your four and five because five will lead right into my prediction for, for Bedlam. Okay. Uh, for number four, I've got Cal at Oregon State. Oregon State's a six-and-a-half-point dog. I think they they might just win that game outright. Oregon State's slowly improving. They were pretty bad about three three to five years ago, but they've, they've slowly gotten better. They haven't won a game yet this year. They played Washington pretty tough uh, this past Saturday. And then Cal played the Sunday morning game against UCLA on the last-minute 48-hour adjustment on their schedule, and they got beat pretty bad. So having a short week, getting on the road up to Corvallis to play Oregon State, I like Oregon State's chances to just win that one outright. And then number five, I'm, I'm jumping on the bandwagon. I've been hesitant to pick Liberty in some of their bigger games this year just because it's so tough when you got a, a group of five team, especially one that's brand new uh, to the <laughs> FBS, 
going up against a power five program, but NC state is just, they're, they're fairly underwhelming. I don't think that, um, you know, they're, I don't think they're as good as Virginia tech. They don't have the dynamic quarterback. They don't have uh, that type of mobility there. So give me uh, a guy that should be getting a lot of Heisman uh, votes, not, not number one, but probably like number three, uh, third place Heisman votes and, and Malik Willis, who's breaking a ton of records. He's in the same conversation as Johnny Manziel and Jalen Hurts with the type oh. of stats that he's putting up this year. He had five total touchdowns this past Saturday. He's been doing that fairly consistently throughout the season. Give me Hugh Freeze Liberty to cover the three and a half and win outright it. You are, you are all, oh my God, you're all in on the Liberty Kool-Aid. You're, I am now. I did now. I don't know that they beat Coastal Carolina in what's going to be a big time ranked matchup in a couple of weeks, but I I think they can go to Raleigh and take a take a W. Let me ask you this: Liberty wins out, they go to a New Year's Six Bowl, find some way to do it. Say they get matched up against OU, who are you cheering for? OU, not even not even a hesitation. But you wouldn't be mad if OU lost. I would be. You okay? Okay. Okay. I mean, OU is, OU is in my DNA. I was born this way. I was raised this <laughs> way. Like Liberty, I went there for a few years and I liked them. But it, yeah, it, maybe like in 40 years, if OU's program tanks over the next 40 years and Liberty's continues to rise, maybe I'll flip. But I don't think that ever happens. Well, I, I think Liberty, um, they're rolling, dude. Th- three and a half points on the road. I mean, essentially, that's a pick em game. Three points at home, that, that's that's what you get every single time. Yeah. So, uh, pick that's the better good, quarterback. That's the, better quarterback, better coach. Absolutely. Uh, who is the coach? I don't even know who the coach at NC State is. Uh, they still have Dave Doran. Dave Doran. That's pretty forgettable. Hasn't uh, He had a couple of good years to start, and it's kind of tailed off a bad lawyer or senator's name dave doran <laughs> yeah. yeah cool well i'll i'll round it out this will kind of lead us into our bedlam um, score predictions um oklahoma or osu traveling to norman to take on uh oklahoma this game opened up at ou minus 10 um since uh it came out yesterday afternoon when i woke up this morning uh vegas everybody had already bet it all the way down to ou minus seven so um Give me the Sooners to cover seven points against Oklahoma State. I think that I think that there's three reasons why OU is going to win this game. I've got OU winning 38-24, so win by two touchdowns. I think OU's front seven. I think they're going to have a field day against this Oklahoma State offensive line. I think that o, I think that OU's been hearing uh, it's probably the, for the last week that you know you guys are playing extremely well, but it's been against Kansas, it's been against TCU, it's been against Texas Tech. This is going to be the most, you know, this is going to be the best test that you guys are going to have, you know, all all year long. I think that Ronnie Perkins, Perrion Winfrey, Nick Benito, I, I I think that they, I think that they go in there and just absolutely stuff the run game. Chuba Hubbard, LD Brown, I uh, don't see either one of them getting above 75, 80 yards. Hope I'm not wrong, but that's just kind of the way I see it going because I'm that confident in OU's front seven. Um, Brian Osamoa, Deshaun White, David Aguebu, they've been playing extremely well over the, la- the course of the last month. Um, I think Spencer, uh, Spencer Rattler, I-, I think he's going to have to play a turnover-free game. I think that I think that what he's done over the last month has been, you know, just continuing to take those next steps and build for a moment like this. Don't necessarily know if he's going to throw for 300 yards or light it up, but I do think he will make a couple couple plays with his feet as well as a couple big plays down the field. Um, and then for last number three, run Ramondre run, feed that man, the football. I hope he's got 25 carries in this game. Um, 
OU's offensive line, again, very similar to what we've said about the defensive line. They've just continuously gotten better and better as the year's gone on. This is the game. This is your measuring stick where you can finally say we've turned the corner. We're building. We're building. 2021 is going to be exciting. I think that OU – I think that OU uh, college game day in town on Saturday, I think they win by at least 14 points. So give me OU 38-24, and I could see it getting out of hand. I agree. I've got a very similar score prediction. I think there's uh, an argument to be made for both the OU offense and defense to have success, quite a bit of success on Saturday. I don't think you can make that argument for the OSU offense. They have a, a very solid defense, but even uh, when you're going up against the amount of talent that OU has, that's still a very tough ask uh, for, for a defense like OSU's. And I, 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 we didn't see Spencer Sanders when we played Oklahoma State last year, but he seems to be inconsistent still. He doesn't seem to have taken that next step and, and make a big leap forward in his, his second year as the starter. So you could get some very good things out of him. You could get some pretty bad things out of him. And, and so for that reason, I think, you know, it's, it's probably going to be a tough outing for him on Saturday. I've got OU 34, OSU 17. Cool. So, yeah, we're, we're right about the same thing. Two, three touchdown win. Um, you think it's close early and then OU pulls one in the second half, or you think they just come out of the gates on fire and kind of put it away early, maybe early in the third quarter? Yeah, I think OU probably leads it by at least one possession throughout most of the game and doesn't quite feel like OSU has enough ammo to to pull it to pull it close and make it make it a game at the end. Yeah, I mean for for Oklahoma State to win this game, Spencer Sanders, he's going to have to have his best game of the year. He's going to have to you know even perform better than he did against Iowa State earlier in the season. Um, they'll have to get some big plays, whether it's trickery, bust a run, bust a coverage. You know, Tylen Wallace making a play, and uh, they've got to hope that Spencer Rattler you know turns the football over. So. Uh, but, but again, I think uh, OU's front seven, Rattler's going to have a good game. Ramondre Stevenson, this is going to be his, his you know, true welcome back uh, game. So, uh, again, OU's going to win by two. You've got a three touchdown – or two touchdown win. Um, again, dude, can't, can't wait for it. Sad, sad that you're going to be uh, – sad that you're not going to be in attendance. But, again, you, you know how we all feel about scheduling weddings during football season. But COVID – COVID kind of uh, kind of messed that up, but uh, hopefully you'll you'll have your phone there, YouTube TV app that'll be rolling. Uh, just make sure it's charged up. So, uh, but it, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. I have no comment on that. <laughs> well, is there anything else for you want to get out of here? I mean, I, th- I think we kind of broke that down as uh, as good as we could for for being a Monday of game week. That's it. Let's make a big statement on a national stage on Saturday. Cool. Good deal. Well, like I said, Bedlam, 6.30, Saturday night, college game day coming to Norman. First time in eight years. Uh, Going to be a big-time game. OU wins. They're in the driver's seat for another appearance in the Big 12 championship game. Um, but again, always appreciate you guys listening. Give us a follow on Twitter at the mainline pod one. You can find us on all the main media platforms uh, for podcasts, Apple, you know, Spotify, all the, all the other various ones. But again, go on there, subscribe, give us a follow, give us a, uh, give us a review. Always appreciate your guys' feedback. Um, but again, we will be back next week, hopefully breaking down a, a nice solid win for uh, Oklahoma and Bedlam propelling us uh, going up to Morgantown here in two weeks. And, uh, it's going to be fun, man. Really excited for this game. Um, I would say probably even more excited than I was for the Texas game. So um, w- what a difference a month makes. So, But, again, appreciate you guys for joining us. Catch us back here next week for another episode of the Mainline Podcast.